You're listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know what? They're at it again. Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation for what? I think the third time in the last couple of years. Now, this time they forked over another $200,000, our tax dollars, to study how to convince you cutting back or eliminating the primary residence exemption is a good idea. Also, you got to hear my shocking stat because it obliterates the argument that Elon Musk's buying Twitter is a threat to ideological diversity. And please do not miss the quote of the week. Maybe it's the quote of the decade from the managing director of the International Monetary Fund because it confirms at least my worst fears about how government continues to make so many terrible decisions. Plus, as we've been warning for a month, the stated goal of the Federal Reserve is to bring stock prices down. And man, they're being successful. Just look at the market action this week. And they're doing it, of course, with threats of big interest rate increases. I'm going to talk with Big Picture Trading's Patrick Sarizna about techniques that you really have to be aware of to protect your portfolio. I mean, they're easy, and we're in an investing environment that absolutely demands you do everything you can to protect yourself. And don't miss the goofy. On the continued revelations on the bogus stories spun by politicians and the mainstream media that were meant to discredit the truckers' convoy and rationalize the Emergencies Act. I think you're just going to be blown away because, of course, you're not hearing it in the mainstream media. Oh, we got that one wrong. Oh, and that one. Oh, and that one. I think it crosses the line for anyone who values integrity, no matter where you stand in the issue, especially of the truckers' convoy. But first, Twitter was headline news again this week, thanks to Elon Musk's proposed purchase, which became the latest proxy, I think, in the free speech wars, with some cheering his stance on free speech and others scared to death of open speech, and they decry it. You know, one of the most fascinating transitions in society is that 70 years ago, the issue of free, free speech all surrounded the political rights push for censorship. And the cancel culture under Senator Joe McCarthy was a witch hunt that targeted and punished anyone who was deemed to not hold acceptable views, namely accused of being a communist sympathizer. You know, for decades after, though, McCarthy was vilified and free speech celebrated. Well, then a profound shift took place on the left of the political spectrum and the push for censorship gained momentum. I think it's one of the great bastardizations of the English language that these people call themselves progressives, as if censorship is a hallmark of, prog of progress. I mean, their ra rationale is the need to restrict misleading and false information. But you know what? What's astounding is that censorship proponents like Barack Obama, Justin Trudeau, Hillary Clinton, other members of the mainstream media and establishment don't recognize their own role in spreading misinformation show no sign of being bothered by misinformation, even outright lies, as long as it supports their point of view. Come on, is there a more blatant example than Russiagate? The biggest media and political story for two years, which was false, and based on the Clinton campaign's financed steel dossier. Or what about Twitter and Facebook, along with the New York Times, Washington Post, restricting any coverage and discussion of Hunter Biden's laptop? which mainstream outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, now acknowledge is authentic. And what about the coverage of COVID, which the same players prevented any discussion of the Wuhan lab origin theory, including from well-known medical experts? And we also saw censorship and punishment of medical experts who dared question the government's official response to COVID. 
I mean, the same type of vilification of scientists who question any part of the government and the climate activists' emergency climate agenda. I mean, the mainstream media couldn't get off the mark fast enough to spend to spread misinformation in the Jesse Smollett case and the uh, vilify Nick Sandman because he was wearing a MAGA hat. I could keep going because there are a lot of examples. But putting any discussion of putting an end to spreading false and misleading information, even outright lies, has to include politicians who are particularly adept at it. In fact, a good argument can be made that the principal characteristic of political discourse is deceit, misinformation, misleading statements. But that's never acknowledged by those pushing to censor social media. Neither is the significant role it plays in declining confidence in government and the establishment. And I'll tell you, the implications of which, while they're on full display already, are not fully appreciated by the public. I mean, gosh, just have a look at Venezuela, Argentina, Sri Lanka, Lebanon, Turkey. Look at their currencies. Look at the inflation rate. That's what happens when confidence leaves government. And look, I want you to be clear. I am not trying to convince you of anything. I'm not going to get, uh, to go into the role that the free exchange of ideas plays in human progress and innovation. You get it or you don't. Literally everything that makes our lives better, increases our standard of living, including medical advancement, is a product of free speech, of questioning the status quo. I mean, there's much to be said, but either you believe in the free exchange of ideas or you don't. Although I will point out that most people who support some form of censorship really I think what it's about is they think they should be the judge of what's allowed to be said or not. But my point instead is to point out that the government's latest attempt to limit free speech on social media and the internet is an assault on free speech itself. The liberals and the NDP believe that their unelected appointees should be the judge of what you can and can't say on social media or can and can't read or hear on the internet. Canada's leading expert, Michael Geist, he's the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, calls the government's proposal to empower a digital safety commissioner who can block websites. They call that drastic. Now, I'm not saying that misinformation is not a problem, but I'm saying, hey, there's a lot of sources for it. And I'm also saying that the cure of censorship is far worse than the disease. Come on, just look at the governments that uh, embrace it. China, North Korea, Iran. I mean, it's the essential difference between democracy and total, uh, totalitarian states is free speech, the freedom to question and oppose government policies. But the bottom line, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter I think what it really does is threaten the control of the narrative by the establishment. You can decide whether that's good or bad for society, but I want you to stay with me for the shocking stat and some of the ridiculous things people have to say in opposing Musk's purchase of Twitter. I think you'll enjoy it. Plus, we've got much more planned for you today, as I said right off the top, so I want you to stay with us. Glad you're here. But one thing that's become abundantly clear, of course, is that we're in a rising interest rate environment. Obviously, the stock markets aren't too keen about that. We've had major plunges in there as the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada is trying to get inflation under control. But they got to do it without uh, inflicting too much pain on the overall economy. I want to bring Michael Levy in on that. Mike, I mean, it is a fine line, the balance that they're trying to walk here. 
Well, it is. In the Bank of Canada, um, the governor uh, uh, made some public pronouncements. I mean, good on him because he says he wants to be transparent. And in fact, Mike, there's where I'm going to give him a little bit of a mark, check mark, is they are being transparent no matter how wrong they are. But um, I, I just wanted to comment to you about the governor saying along the way they've made some mistakes. Yeah, I, I mean, do you know that, by the way, Mike, uh, this past Thursday was the one-year anniversary of the central bank saying this is transitory. That's what the Federal Reserve came out. That became the mantra for months right till the end of the year. And inflation was about 2.6% at that time in the States. Of course, it's well into the 7 8% mark right now. But I, th- I sort of thought that was ironic. Yeah, you were wrong. Uh, and I'll tell you, with, I appreciate also that Tiff Macklin said, oh, we've got some things wrong. Uh, forgive me, I've got to add this. You got the most important thing wrong. That's actually, Mr. Macklin, you got the most important thing wrong. And that is our cost of living has been exploding. And I'll add to that, you know what, Milton Friedman has been arguably the most influential uh, economist of the last 50, 60 years. He made it very clear, and you know, tons of people in the economic field agree with him, that ultimately inflation is a byproduct of money supply. And what we've done in Canada, I think our money supply was up 27% in two years. That means kind of the amount of money flushed into the system. The States is even more, 40% increase. Well, no wonder the price of stuff is going up. Well, well, Mike, I mean, just apropos of what you just said, Canadian households right now are in such good shape because of all that money that was flushed into the system. Uh, he, he thinks, and their guess at the Bank of Canada, is Canadian households are sitting on around $200 billion in excess savings put away during that pandemic. And that's money that's going to come out into the system, be spent and feed inflation. And by the way, my children and grandchildren want to thank them because that's who's going to be paying. That was deficit spending. The you know, Bank of Canada created money out of thin air, bought government bonds, you know, basically saying same problem Japan's having right now, but they did it in order to keep interest rates down. And the government sent money out, not just to people who were impacted uh, negatively by, you know, financially by the pandemic. No, about 80% of it went to people who weren't. So you're right. We've ended up with this ton of money and people are spending it. That's the demand side. At the same time, of course, we have supply problems. So there's fewer goods. Presto, that's how you get nearly 7% inflation in March. Absolutely. And Mike, I think the housing market might be one of the keys right here because the housing market is really a really major part of the economy and housing and everything to do with housing and raising rates too quickly could choke off the housing market. We're starting to see that in Ontario, Toronto. We're starting to see that in some parts of the U.S. and not yet in the West Coast. But Mike, it's coming and it's important. I think it's important also for people to understand uh, there's sort of this pretense that somehow the Bank of Canada or the finance minister has a dial like that's that finely tuned that they can calibrate the movements in the market. And didn't Mr. Macklin just admit they can't because that's a heck of a spread between sitting around 2.6 percent and getting to 7 percent basically in March and not seeing it coming. I mean, why would we think they're getting it right this time when they try and slow things down? Well, Mike, that's the problem is that uh, if they raise rates too fast, too high, that could choke off business investment and that could erode consumer confidence. Those same consumers that are sitting on $200 billion in savings and uh, um, 
that that could be the key, the 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 balance point where the housing market, other inflation, the bank having to raise interest rates too quickly could put us into recession. I'm not saying that, but that could be the balance point. Yeah, and that's what they're worried about. Uh, but let me come back to the other thing you said. Yes, there is uh, massive amounts of savings that get eaten up when prices go up. I mean, keep in mind at a 6.7% inflation rate for the average Canadian who earns about 1200 bucks a week, well, that ends up to over 4000 more $4,000 more after-tax dollars for the same goods they bought a year ago, if that's what we keep doing. And keep in mind, the bank does say we're going to keep at about a 5% rate. You know, that's going to average yeah. for 2022. So, yeah, we got the savings. They're going to get eaten up by inflation. And, of course, the other thing, they're trying to impact demand. How do they do it? They raise interest rates. So now the bet, as you know, Mike, is another 50 basis points coming up in June. Or 75, and he even admitted that. He's saying 50. The error of omission, because we were talking about what Tiff Macklem missed in the Bank of Canada, missed the error of omission that he didn't talk about. And, Mike, I read voluminously what he had to say from different commentators. And the fact is they're not taking wages into consideration. It's nowhere written. And you take a look. Inflation bites Canada's low-income workers, setting up difficult negotiations between unions and employers. Headline Globe and Mail. They're talking about workers on the lower end of the pay scale, overnight workers, cleaners, uh, uh, people who work uh, in buildings, department stores. Mike, they are looking at wage hikes of anywhere between 4 and 6% and agreeing on that. Now, I know there's a fight in other areas where BC, particularly the General Employment Union, they want pay increases that need inflation, and the government here is offering somewhere around 1.5%, 2 maybe even 2.5%. They're not going to stand for that. There's going to be huge wage inflation. So my direction in looking at what's going to happen, I'm looking to, first of all, the mea culpa about from the Bank of Canada, wage inflation might be very impactful. And I'm interested to see where that ends up because the higher wages go, the more you're going to pay and the more the Bank of Canada is going to have to raise rates. And let's keep in mind, they only raise rates to impact demand. They can't touch supply at this point. We've got supply chain problems increasing in China because of their lockdowns. So this story is far from written. And I'll just tell you this to leave off, Mike. Okay, I'm going to play. I'll top you. You just talked about uh, the Bank of Canada. We both congratulate them for being candid about the mistake that they've made. Wait till you hear my shocking stat and be sitting down when you do. It tops it in terms of an official being honest. Well, you know what? You can, you, you can get the honest goods for us, but I think when the program's over and we go back and listen to central banks or governments, we've got to take a deep breath and maybe take it with a grain of salt. Absolutely. Have a good week. You too, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. And it may be the most shocking quote I've heard in really quite some time, probably decades. It gets to the heart, though, of why we have this inflation problem, or we have energy and food prices going through the roof. Or maybe you think the goal was to have record high energy fertilizer prices, which guaranteed the crisis, which threatens literally millions of people with starvation. Maybe you think the goal was multi-decade high inflation. I'm just going to give them a break. I don't think that's the case. I think they've been surprised. They've been surprised by the unintended consequences. But the question is, how did we arrive in this sea of unintended negative consequences? including 
the fallout from the EU's energy dependence on Russia or the myriad of negative consequences from the decision to lock down the economy in response to COVID? I should have said lock down society. Or the worst inflation, 30, 40 years, which was the inevitable consequence of central banks and governments pushing trillions of dollars into the economy and, you know, with things like record low interest rates. I mean, everywhere we look, we are living negative, unintended consequences. And that brings me to this astonishing quote by Kristalina Ivanova Georgieva. Now, she's chair and managing director of the International Monetary Fund. She was in a roundtable discussion that included the Federal Reserve's Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank. And she stated in quotes, we are not paying sufficient attention to the law of unintended consequences. We take our decisions with an objective in mind and rarely think through what may happen if our objective's not met. Take any decision, like the decision that we have to spend to support the economy. At that time, we did recognize that may lead to too much money in circulation, to too few goods, but we really didn't think through the consequences. Come on, this defines decision-making at the highest level. Whether we were talking or are talking about COVID restrictions or the war on fossil fuels, never thought past what happens next. Now, as I said, I'll give the leaders the benefit of the doubt and say things like the record high energy fertilizer prices resulting food crisis. I give them this benefit of the doubt. I know that wasn't their goal. They were just surprised by it. Same with all the other things like the negative fallout from COVID. But my goodness, Ms. Georgieva has confirmed our worst fears that the people in charge of the most monumental decisions in generations didn't think them through. There was no, for example, cost-benefit analysis of the different restrictions during COVID. And the problem is compounded by the fact that we're not supposed to question authority. That's aggressively discouraged. As I say, I'm just shaking my head here. It's my worst fear that they didn't think through the possible consequences of these major league decisions. I'm really pleased to welcome back to the show. I got Patrick Sarizna. You know him from Big Picture Trading. Also does a couple of terrific podcasts, by the way, uh, Macro Voices, and he also does the Market Huddle with our friend uh, Kevin Muir. But I want to talk a little bit about what you do on Big Picture Trading, though, Patrick, because yeah. uh, you guys have been on top of this market. So I know it's the sort of Barbara Walters question, but give me the quick overlay of what you're seeing in the markets these days. Well, first of all, Michael, thank you for having me back on the show. It's uh, always a pleasure. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, you're one of the greats in, uh, in Canadian radio, at least uh, throughout time, and love to be on your show. Anyway, so let's talk market. So overall, I uh, think that uh, we're in the midst of some sort of, um, uh, uh, obviously, the Fed is tightening. We have a, a, some sort of a rotation in the markets. The punch bowl has been taken away. And, and this uh, really big bull market phase of the stock market has played its course out. And now, we're go- uh, now what we're seeing is the punch bowl has been taken away and uh, stocks are starting to mean revert back to more reasonable levels. And so 
cycle. Their underpinning breadth of the market is deteriorating. There's an underpinning bear market in unprofitable tech and all those things that were running super hot in 2019, 2021 are all uh, down 50 and 70%. And we see secular inflation, which is essentially driving uh, commodity price or commodity prices are obviously contributing massively to that. And, um, and it really has changed the entire investment landscape. Uh, at this stage, the way a portfolio has to be positioned in order to be uh, performing in this environment is completely different than the portfolio that worked two years ago. And that, that's such a key point for people to hear loud and clear. They, we, we have trouble, I think, making adjustments, all of us, in some area of our lives. You don't notice that you know, people aren't wearing bell bottoms anymore. You know, I had my platform shoes on for about a, an extra three years, you know, the mutton chops. I mean, we, we're slow to take that change. And, and I, I really like your point. There's been a change. The easy money's over, as you say, the punch bowl, the record low interest rates. I mean, what's our first hint other than the Fed telling us that, yeah. you know, and the market still, despite the sort of declines, the market is still telling us there's a lot more to come. And I think that environment, uh, recognizing that change is just so important, as you say, now adjust your portfolio. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, the uh, macro environment, the geopolitical environment has drastically changed. I mean, a few years ago, we were looking at, uh, you know, the petrodollar system and the global uh, US dollar hegemony of the, uh, the entire system functioning off of global trade. And the idea that China and Russia had open economies that, uh, that uh, the US companies could access. And suddenly, uh, the entire landscape has massively shifted and um, the confidence of, of investors to uh, put money into work in China, uh, obviously the closure of, through sanctions of the Russian economy, uh, the, uh, the global supply chains being massively disrupted and where all these commodities are going and the food shortages from you know, Ukraine food not being able to be pumped out, uh, all sorts of crazy things happening. And these things are very uh, likely to not go back to the way they were two years ago. Now, we are seeing a completely reshaping of the global, um, uh, the way global trade is uh, played out. And, uh, and, the, and we have to kind of look at where are the places to invest in this new environment. Yeah, uh, let's talk about, you know, focus on that just for a second, a second and I'll come back. We've been big bulls on the commodity market, not late yes. to it. We were early to it, you know, uh, yeah. calling it the great commodity boom coming. And that was February of 2020. So I want to ask you, what about that now? So I, if you see a decline in that sector, just your view, uh, should I be worried about it? I mean, I'm talking not as a trader now, sorry. I'm talking yeah. as an investor. Right. So uh, what we just uh, witnessed, let's say, over the last two weeks uh, was essentially uh, a, almost like a, a little short-term liquidity shock in the whole market. And when when investors are starting to sell and getting margin called and leverage is being pulled out of the system, uh, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Everything sells. The correlation of all assets go to one. We finally saw a, a correction really kick in uh, to the commodity markets, largely driven by this almost melt-up of the U.S. dollar that's just been occurring now, uh, approaching decades highs on the dollar index. Uh, this 
uh, I view as uh, a uh, fundamental buying opportunity in in this pullback. Uh, the reality is is that the supply side response remains completely muted. Uh, capital expenditure uh, is simply not there responding to this growing demand in commodities that are needed. Um, uh, you know, uh, as we're uh, seeing this energy transformation, this idea that we're moving away from fossil fuels to to electricity. Well, uh, we we're, when uh, they re-kick start the economy and we see fiscal spending ramped up uh, to kind of restart things, it's going to be needing copper and uh, and aluminum and tin and uh, nickel and rare earths and all these things to to basically uh, transform the the way that our entire energy infrastructure is uh, going to play out. This is just because there's a short-term little correction here doesn't change what is going to happen in the bigger macro scale in, in the next five years. And, um, and well, investors really can't lose sight of that. You know, when you suddenly are getting hit 10, 20% on some of your favorite resource names, you're, you feel like something has changed, but the bigger macro story hasn't changed. And therefore these types of pullbacks often represent opportunity to to uh, to reposition yourself and and uh, and get into names that you uh, missed out on on the initial entries. Uh, let me come back to also you're saying it's a rotation. So obviously there's some groups you want to stay away from, and I know you've been uh, broadcasting and talking about you know these internal market dynamics, which is music to our ears here on Money Talks. In that we haven't sort of noticed uh, the devastation in some of those sort of mid tech yeah. areas. Uh, that exploded, and I'm, I, I've said right from the get-go, I didn't make any money in that stuff. You know, I didn't, I didn't ride Arc as it went up. I didn't get Peloton, but I also didn't get it on the way down because I didn't like the chart patterns. I didn't like yeah. the speculation. So, uh, elaborate a little bit there. Is that sort of the number one group that you say, hey, stay away from that for for right now? It hasn't formed the bottom I'm looking for. Right. I mean, you can go through bull and bear markets uh, from 2000 to 2003 or the 2008 period. There's, uh, you can find situations where, um, uh, where we have seen uh, um, the, there's a, the underpinning bubble stocks that really ran a rampant, right? And so this time around, uh, SPACs and unprofitable tech and these unicorn names and all of these uh, all, all of these uh, names that were uh, just super bold when uh, when the Fed was uh, you know pumping liquidity in the system and greed and and speculation was most rampant they ran all of these types of stocks to those absurd levels very similar to what happened with internet stocks back in ninety nine two thousand and um, and what we're seeing today is the bear market in those names is running full throttle. And we're seeing uh, that uh, many of those names are down 50, 70, 80% in some cases uh, off of their highs. And they're in a sell-off that has been already running for a year. Uh, and, and you think back to many bear markets in a similar fashion have run their courses over even two, three years in some cases. Uh, this is uh, not a buy on dip in those spaces. The, these, you have to uh, let the bloodbath finish off. And at some point, everything is a buy uh, when it gets cheap enough. Uh, but, but right 
right now, this is a, the, that entire space has to be left alone. What, what really has been working and continues to work is uh, being in those things that are a hedge on inflation. And, uh, and commodities are one of the single best ways to hedge inflation risk by owning commodity stocks and commodity names. And I don't think that that's going away on the short term. It is amazing, though, that, like it's a lesson, you know, as you know, people lose perspective or maybe they've they're newer to the market and they've never seen a bear market unfold uh, like we have in those sort of mid uh, hot tech stocks. But my gosh, as you say, I mean, I was looking, sorry, yesterday at uh, it was Thursday, I guess it was on Spotify down 73 percent from its high in February of 2021 and so many others I could talk about. But oh. it was big names. Wow. You know, it was just wow. And of course, uh, Netflix being in the news, uh, Facebook being in the news more recently. Yeah. It's incredible. It's uh, it's incredible, uh, but it, but it's uh, it's typical because if you if you think about what uh, can allow those growth names to have those ridiculous multiples, it was incredibly cheap and low interest rates and very low inflation rates, and uh, and when you have high interest rates and and high inflation, uh, those multiples are blown out. Uh, there's no way you can justify paying the, uh, that kind of price for those uh, for that kind of earnings and uh, and that kind of growth. And they all had to correct. It was uh, it's one of these scenarios that uh, it's it's they're getting uh, run down by a, uh, a, a huge train that's coming down the tracks and uh, and just plowing through all of them. And it's going to at some point, like I was saying, every bear market ends, there will be an opportunity. Like, for instance, when in 2002, 2003, when Amazon was down 90 percent off of its highs, it was a buy inevitably it was a great buy to buy it down there but it took two three years in in the between 2001 to 2003 in order for that bear market to end for the opportunity to be there uh, let me come to you know big picture trading what you do is you you mentor people you help people learn about trading techniques etc and i want to come to that like i don't want to run out of time without talking about a couple of things to you and, and that is using the options market now I don't want anyone to roll their eyes. This is what big picture trading helps their people with, but it's, I want to help you with it because I just think you're, you're playing the game without a full arsenal. If you're not at least looking at some of the t things, the tools you could use. And uh, so I want to just, what about those people sitting back and going, I am nervous about the market. Maybe I don't want to sell. Give us the quick take on what a put option is. P-U-T, put option. Yeah. A put option is uh, essentially uh, a contract that secures you a guaranteed sale price. Uh, and so what you're doing is you are paying money out of your pocket, uh, like buying an insurance policy on your car. Uh, you're paying money. Like, for instance, you don't want to crash your car when you buy an insurance policy on your car. When, you, when that insurance policy expires, you're not upset that, you know, I didn't get to cash it in. Uh, in, the, in, in the same way, you can buy insurance on a stock and say, I want to guarantee that I want to be able to sell if things are going wrong that I have a, an, a, a secured sale price, that the loss cannot get any worse than this. And obviously, the price of that insurance is variable to the volatility of the underlying, whether, you know, a less volatile stock will be a much cheaper insurance and a much more volatile stock will be much more expensive. But it is actually an incredibly valuable tool. And what, what a lot of people overlook is they look at the, uh, the nominal price of the option and say, you know what, look, I can't believe I have to pay 5% of the value 
value of the stock to buy this insurance, but they miss the most valuable element uh, of that, which is uh, it gives you the emotional control to be able to actually stay put through a correction because what causes most people to panic is they don't know how bad the loss can be when things start to drop. And they're always shocked at how fast, how fast and how far a market drops. And they just can't take the pain anymore. So they start to sell and they, uh, and they sell often at the worst times. But the beautiful thing about having insurance and a put, uh, if I secured the sale price of my stock and my, that stock suddenly goes through a correction dropping 20%, I have the ability to literally sell high and buy it all back cheaper and and while it on the surface appeared that option cost money you actually have this huge benefit of being able to completely reposition yourself on your favorite stock at a more favorable price uh, there are so many tactical uses for this um, for those that want to be strategic about their investment process and you just I just alluded to a few examples. You could have bought an insurance policy to sell Netflix at four hundred dollars just a few months ago, and you would have paid probably twenty dollars for that. You would have that insurance would have run out, say, in six months' time, and you would have paid maybe twenty bucks for that. Well, yeah, and it, it's gone down two hundred dollars. You know, I mean, you kind of like paying twenty bucks insurance, so you know, and this is something people should get. That's what you've bought. You, as Patrick says, you've bought insurance. You get to sell it at a fixed price over a period of time, any day you want over that sort of term of your insurance. Yeah, Michael, the one thing I also want to highlight, uh, we uh, in this industry have accepted that diversification is the primary risk management tool. You own uncorrelated assets and you own a, a, a number of them and, you, uh, and that's how you manage risk. But the thing that is common amongst Canadians in, in uh, smaller RSPs and or tax-free savings accounts is to take concentration risk. You know, uh, how many Canadians I know that have nothing but gold and silver stocks in their uh, TFSA or something like this. They basically put, have one thematic idea and they put it all in. Well, you have no diversification. Once you lose the benefit of diversification, how do you manage risk? Uh, now, some say, well, I'll market time it. I'll just sell when, I, when this happens and that happens. But the thing that I say is the moment you put on concentration risk, the moment you put all your eggs in one basket, how could you not be insured on it? Look, if you have a diversified portfolio and you have a bunch of mutual funds, fine. And you probably don't need put insurance. But if you really want to take a high conviction idea and go concentrated on that idea, uh, having an exit strategy or some way to manage the risk is a very important thing. And so there are times when that put option is much more important than others. Uh, you make a, such a great point. But I'll, I'll, I'm going to go a little further, though, in saying the market is moving in unison. Every bond's down. That's an example. So I can't, you know, I couldn't hedge my bond portfolio within the bond market itself. Same with stocks. You notice, obviously, some are doing far worse than others. That's for sure. Yeah. But um, I, you know, so I just think your point's excellent about concentration risk. But some of that might be as simple as saying all my money's in stocks. I was just looking yeah. at something and in Canada. Correlation risk as well. Yeah. So uh, those are the things that, and of course, you cover these at Big Picture Trading, but those are the things we want to bring to your attention. And as we say, we started with a put option, buy insurance in case that stock goes down. Okay. I want to move to something else now. And I really encourage people to look at that, you know, do a little reading on that. Uh, Patrick, just, and I, again, I'm worried about confusing people, but quickly, 
what about selling a call option? I own a stock and it might be a quality stock, might be TELUS or something, or it might be one of our banks. And yes, you think there's risk there, but you don't want to unload it. Right. Now, uh, selling call options or what is covered call writing is something I think you've already shared with your listeners on an ongoing basis. It's uh, it's a very common strategy that is uh, how most people get introduced to uh, conservatively into utilizing options. And in this environment, what what all of the listeners want to think is is that the Fed has more or less capped the upside of the stock market. Let's not not, uh, assume that they're going to guarantee a market crash or some big, huge correction, but they certainly have thrown a wet blanket on the top of this market, and almost all attempts for the market to rally are muted. I can't think of a better time to be enhancing your portfolio returns through grabbing at income by selling covered calls, uh, it, uh, by creating an income stream that is, uh, that is not um, uh, need you don't need the market to be appreciating to make it. It's almost like collecting dividends. You uh, whether the market stays the same or goes up a little or goes down, you make a return, and uh, and that gives you a, a, an a important diversifier of, of how you're making your returns. And uh, in, in this environment, if you're not willing uh, to sell, you might as well be making some extra income return to to actually blunt the uh, the downside of your, uh, of your portfolio through a, a healthy income stream and cash flow. So basically we're talking, uh, I own one of the big Canadian banks, maybe get three and a half percent dividend. I don't want to unload it. So I give someone the right to purchase that for me. I was looking, for example, at the Toronto Dominion Bank this week, trading about $73. Again, you know, it, it's changing obviously momentarily. So I give someone the right to buy it from me for $75. Yeah. And let's say I say, you can come and knock on my door anytime. Take, give me 75. I'll give you the stock, say, till the end of the year. They'll give me like four or five bucks for that, yeah. plus my dividend. So presto, now I've got, as you say, I sort of rented out the property, and I've got a nice little 8 9% return on that. Yeah. You know, so uh, th- this is the stuff, I, again, I want to emphasize that big picture trading talks about a more sophisticated too, of course, but those are the fundamentals as they move into this huge issue of risk protection these days, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. And, and w- one of the interesting things just to, uh, without trying to um, uh, over confuse uh, mm-hmm. listeners, uh, an interesting idea, a lot of um, people come into the issue, let's say they've owned a Canadian bank stock for the last decade, and their cost base is maybe 10 cents on the dollar. Like they've just made so much return over the last decade or so on these bank stocks that if they sell it, the capital gains would be enormous. And so even though they want to sell, they find it incredibly difficult to do so because the, the because of the huge tax uh, uh, of the tax disposition uh, that they have to pay from from selling it. Now, what is amazing is is that if you feel that that stock doesn't have more upside, but you don't want to sell uh, because of the tax consequences, you can 
combine the buying of the protective put that we talked about earlier to, to protect yourself and use the income from selling the covered call to pay for it. What you've done is the strategy that me and you've talked about called a caller, which is you've capped the upside, but you've also limited the downside. You've basically pinned your performance of that stock into a range, but you've what you've done is create a scenario where you don't didn't have to sell the stock, but you removed almost all of the risk of owning it. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for you for sharing the expertise, but I want to also direct people to big picture trading. Yeah. And uh, there's Thank a 14 day trial, you know, so it's a 14 day free trial. So for goodness sakes, take advantage of it. Uh, go and, and take the trial, see what kind of stuff. It's just bigpicturetrading.com, bigpicturetrading.com. Take the free trial. And as I say, and I guess you would say this all the time. There's always reasons to understand these strategies. I just feel we're in an environment, thanks to the Federal Reserve doing the kickoff. We were the ones here on Money Talks talking a great deal, as, as you're well aware, former New York Fed President uh, Bill Dudley saying, hey, the only way we're getting this down is to knock stocks down. I don't think that's done. The market's still telling us the interest rate increases aren't done. I think it's a time to look at all the tools you have available to protect yourself. And uh, Patrick, you, you guys do a great job of it. And I really appreciate you finding time for us. Thank you, Michael. I, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to have you on the market huddle uh, this summer. Okay. Love to do it. One of the big stories we've been chronicling, actually forecasting here on Money Talks. It started with a forecast in February of 2020 that, you know, we were worried about food shortages. And uh, of course, that has been manifesting. Uh, we, uh, we were worried about higher uh, fertilizer costs because we were watching the natural gas kind of market develop over the last part of 2020, but especially into the last, uh, say, five months of 2021. And lo and behold, I want to talk more about this. I mean, obviously, food is one of the key components. We say here, if you had two variables to create social unrest, you'd start with food and energy. We got them both. That's why I'm so pleased to have Jamie Wilton with me, R.G. O'Brien, uh, uh, senior commodity futures analyst and, and uh, a longtime trader in those markets. First of all, Jamie, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let, let, tell me about what it's been like for you guys. I mean, you're you're on the you know sort of the ground floor. You're watching these prices moves. I mean, it must have been jaw dropping at some point. Yeah, very much so. For for about the last two years here, it's been uh, volatility has been extreme, uh, very extreme on some days. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of events going on here. A lot of moving parts, and uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a little bit crazy at times. <clears throat> When we first had the Russian invasion, and I want to make sure people understand that, as you just said, it's been two years and we watched these prices go up. We watched fertilizer prices, especially. But, you know, is it, am I accurate in just saying when you look at those markets, I'm talking like wheat, corn, some other grains, et cetera, soybeans, uh, sunflower, I mean, whatever it is. Has it calmed down at least a little at this point or has it basically made that big run up and sort of consolidated, but at a higher level? It has calmed down a little bit. Yeah, you're right. It, we had the big adjustment up on the, on wheat. Um, so it's kind of gone uh, sideways here, consolidating. Corn continues to work higher because you're now that we're into North American weather, there's some concerns with uh, the growing season and how it's uh, starting off here with uh, weather. 
and that'll just continue for the next uh, few months. We'll be watching North American weather uh, closely day to day, and and how this crop uh, in North America gets gets seeded, and in what kind of conditions, and and what the growing situation looks like with uh, heat and precipitation uh, through the summer months. I guess, obviously, I mean, it's, it's, uh, people seem to appreciate now that, uh, you know, the global wheat export market has been dramatically impacted by both Ukraine and sanctions on Russia, Ukraine invasion, et cetera. I guess we can't afford to not, uh, to have a weak uh, harvest here in Canada. I mean, it's an opportunity for Canada, but let's, uh, you know, fingers crossed that it's a strong season. Yeah, it's, the way it's looking right now, it's even with uh, a reasonable growing uh, season in Canada, it still looks like we're going to tighten up the balance sheet a little bit more in North America. Uh, the winter wheat crop in the U.S. is uh, struggling a little bit with uh, with drought and dryness in the, in the southern plains. Uh, spring wheat areas have a lot of moisture now, too much beginning to be too much in some areas um but it's that winter wheat crop that is coming in probably less than ideal and it, it does look like uh, uh with some increased exports uh because of problems elsewhere that uh our balance sheets in north america will tighten up a little bit more here this year none of the fundamentals seem to have shifted positively you know, uh, when I'm looking globally, and then, as you say, maybe some challenges in North America to boot, but uh, it doesn't seem like we're alleviating a lot of this. I'm, I'm still looking at ammonia prices, uh, urea prices. I'm looking at, you know, the costs of uh, uh, other uh, fertilizer ba- or bases, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I sort of think, man, are we heading into next year, just like we don't know the end of the Ukraine uh, situation. Yeah, it's hard to see an end to the, you mentioned fertilizer, it's hard to see an end to uh, tightness there right now. I think that will last uh, the better part of this year and into next year. Uh, So that's going to put a drag on yield uh, for producers all over the world, really. Mm -hmm. South America will be impacted as well when they get into their new growing season. so you'll see a shifting of commodities or production on different uh, different commodities that you know maybe to- geared towards less uh, reliance on on fertilizer. It seems like a lot of stuff is hitting at the same time. Obviously, some trade issues, sanction issues, as you you know as you're alluding to in the food market. But I was looking in Great Britain, for example. Uh, you know, three of their major uh, grocery store chains are restricting the amount of vegetable oil I can buy, you know, it's like two bottles at a shot, that kind of stuff. And that's where I think you really get people's attention. Uh, you know, when you when it affects them to that level, and you're saying, I mean, food shortages are, thank God, are uh, a strange situation for Western countries, and tragically not for uh, many other countries in the world. But when you start hitting our, our grocery shelves, yeah, people take notice. Yeah, and I, I, I guess looking forward here, trying to I think as time goes on, some of the issues were definitely caused by supply chain Mm -hmm. uh, issues. Um, Some of those will slowly but surely hopefully relax and and improve. Um, The palm oil production in Indonesia, you know, 
countries like that trying to protect their own markets and keep the inflation in check so they they shut down uh, exports and try to uh, to accomplish that but you know that that will probably work in the short run uh and then you'll you know you'll start to uh back up uh supplies and it won't take long before they have excess supplies and then they'll try and dump it on the market and it'll it'll cause more volatility more gyrations but it it doesn't change really anything in the long run you're still you still need to increase uh production uh rebuild supplies globally uh remove some of these uh restrictions on on movement of of commodities uh that are occurring uh, for various reasons um so it it is something that uh it will hit home and countries banks central banks will will make knee jerk reactions and uh with interest rates and whatnot but it uh it will start to, or it has already started to hit uh, people at home and their pocketbooks. Well, uh, I'll leave that cheerful note there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that's the whole point of it all. Look, I appreciate you finding time for us. Hope we can call on you again as this market develops for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on today. Time now for the week's shocking stat. Well, as I mentioned just a little bit ago at the top of the show, the reaction in some quarters to the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk has been, well, let's just call it interesting. Uh, one of the narratives that's been actually hilarious to me and a testament to the lack of self-awareness was wonderfully expressed by the former CEO of social media site Reddit, who in an op-ed in the Washington Post, it was entitled, Twitter bid highlights the risk of a sole owner, and goes on to call for government regulation to, in quotes, prevent rich people from controlling our channels of communication. Come on, this is a newspaper that's owned by billionaire Jeff Bezos through his uh, company Nash Holdings. But how don't you get that? How, how could they not see that when they're writing it and putting it in the paper? But how about the worry that Musk will censor the progressive woke agenda? This is kind of a cute quote by executive director of United Nations Watch, Hillel Neuer, who he's being tongue in cheek here, by the way, he says they fear Elon Musk could undermine the ideological diversity, equity and inclusion at Twitter, which currently maintains a careful balance of 98.7% for one side. And that brings me to the shocking stat of the week. Speaking of lack of ideological diversity in Silicon Valley, but social media specifically, Vox did some research on who's making donations to the midterm elections, you know, and the candidates by party. So here you go. Number one, Netflix, 99.6% of the donations go to Democratic candidates. Twitter itself, 98.7% go to Democratic candidates. Apple, just out of interest, 97.5%, all Democrat. Uh, Google, 96%. Facebook, 94.5%. This is interesting. Tesla, 93.9%, nearly 94% of Tesla. Why are they worried? I don't know. But it really just points out the lack of ideological diversity, uh, certainly in Silicon Valley, but also in social media. And I just got a real kick out of it. But I was also shocked at it's to that extreme. I've got Ozzy Jurek with me now because I got something to talk about, Ozzy. I, I, I don't know where you want to go with this, but we have been chronicling 
the threat to tax our home equity. Right now, of course, it's my primary residence. I sell it. There's no tax implication. But we've been chronicling how that's come in play, including in the 2016 uh, British Columbia provincial election, where the Green Party actually had it in their platform to tax someone's sale of primary residence above, I think it was a $500,000 gain threshold. But of course, maybe you've owned the house for 60 years. Maybe inflation has eroded that value. But my point being, it's in play. What do we find out this past week? That the CMHC yet again has commissioned more study on taxing our home equity. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, I think we started to talk about it on the radio two years ago that, that the rumor was that a grant had been given to UBC to study the effect of, uh, of taxing home equity. Now, there was such an outcry that everybody denied that it took place. Uh, actually, we didn't do that. It was actually a study to just generally uh, analyze housing and so on. And then this, this last fall uh, and then earlier this year, Mr. Kershaw, President, uh, University of British Columbia um, uh, professors said that uh, uh, it, it is a culture change we need uh, in this world. And, and, and so when you look at what does he mean by that? Well, he means that we should be taxing home equity to the point of $5.7 billion a year. And he even is found to have, a, I guess, the Canada Taxpayer Federation got some emails where he said he would advise the CMHC manager, culture change is hard, and we're definitely serving a punching bag for many as we work to make the politically impossible possible. Now, that's such a key. You know, like, like sit on that for a second. It's such a key. And I'll just remind you that also the federal liberal government had also commissioned a study and they said we are not going to do it, but they did have a study presented. Then you get the CMHC piling in. Then you get this update with after them, as you say, saying, oh, no, 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 doing this. And those words are so important. I want you to repeat them. The point of this is to make it more palatable for the public. Yeah, politically impossible, possible, and then in brackets, sooner rather than later. Now, his point, and he's a very one, 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 what I like about him is he's a, at least he's clear in his objectives. We want to tax it. If we can't tax the home equity uh, by, by eliminating the capital gains tax, let's bring a wealth tax overall. And he came up with this great plan to tax anybody over that owned a, a property over a, a million dollars. And that the idea was that that effect would have had 1.4 million homeowners nationwide, including 21% of British Columbia and 13% of Ontario, according to the UBC researchers. And of course, it, 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 it's like a, 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 a wet potato, not a hot potato. It fell down and it, it looks like it's gone dead. But I don't think he's going to give up because the whole idea is that there is too much wealth in us homeowners. We have, for some reason or other, we are the villain. No matter what we do is we got this money because while we were watching TV, that's his quote, and, and we, we don't deserve this. It's so outrageous, and, and it's an ignorant statement. I want to be clear. I don't give a darn that somebody's working at, you know, at the University of British Columbia. I can tell you I could address tons of economists working right now at universities. Take me about two minutes, and on this case, Let's talk about why. Let's talk about why. Direct result of government policy has pushed house prices up. Number one has been record low interest rates in this last bout over the last two years. Before that, similar things. 
you know, ultimately it's been a monetary policy phenomena, or at least a, a huge part of it. It's also part of immigration, uh, which is a government policy, uh, which is uh, uh, restrictions at the municipal level for building, you know, uh, the list, the length of time it takes to get uh, permit approval, all of these things. Government's fingerprints are all over the problem that reduces supply, all over the demand increases through record low interest rates. You know what? And you're right, Ozzy. They act as if it's the homeowner who's done something wrong, other than maintaining their property, paying property taxes. Sorry, I'm going on a rant here, but it just drives me crazy. Well, the big thing that, that I look, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. I don't know. I do know that North America is, particularly the United States and Canada, of course, we are the dream boat of the world. Our immigration offers up packed with thousands and thousands of people around the world that want to live in our system. And part of that system is that 64% of American families have owned their primary residence in 2019. In Canada, we went from 63% 20 years ago to 69% uh, just before the coronavirus. It's part of our makeup. And, it, and look at what it does for the economy. In 2020, the spending on housing service in the United States was $2.8 trillion or a whopping 13% of GDP, and together with the housing market, it's almost 18% of GDP. Now look, Mike, real estate affects the economy because a large portion of our individual and business wealth across all economic sectors is achieved. And when real estate prices rise, wealth increases, so we as individuals and businesses are much more likely to borrow and spend. That's why our economy is so good. Our unemployment rates are great, and employment rates are getting better. And it's all part in, in due, due uh, to our uh, focus on real estate ownership. Well, it's a straightforward concept in economics it's called the wealth effect. You know, when uh, stock markets are high, real estate values are high, people feel good. They go out and spend money. Uh, but, you know, the other side of this is I hate the way they ignore that it costs the homeowner. Maybe maybe my house has gone up in value, yes, because of monetary policy, uh, you know, uh, other restrictions, supply restrictions, et cetera. But it's also gone up because I've maintained it. I've renovated it. I've paid, uh, you know, property taxes as an example, nonstop. I mean, that's never acknowledged. Well, and that's it. Utilities, insurance, repairs and maintenance. We say on average we replace a roof every 20 years with the upkeep that we have to pay for. And then when you, when you start out, you know, here governments at all levels say we need more, more uh, building. And then the Toronto just introduced a 47% increase in development cost charges. They introduced, they still have the vote on it, but imagine 47% out of the blue uh, zapping the same developer that's supposed to be out there building uh, at, a, at a lower cost, right? So the other thing is we forget, look, in, in property owners pay all of the school school costs, you know, the tenants don't pay for the school. You can make a whole slew of things that, that a homeowner has to pay for over the years. Money Search, uh, Money Sense magazine came out and said three to five percent of the value of a home we spend every year on upkeep. So for a 40 year old home, they figured if it was $500,000, it meant you had to spend between twenty and 25000 a year. All that is forgotten in the UBC research when it, it's somehow we have been sitting there getting wealthy beyond our means, forgetting that over the last 20 years there have been at least 10 years where prices actually went down or stayed even. Ozzy, I don't want to leave this. I, I, I know time's run out, but I've got to come back to something you've just said. You know, I just want to think about sort of the disconnect of all the politicians who tell us, what, for 30, 40, 50 years, I don't know, that they care about inflation, or sorry, where they care about affordable housing. Okay, so we know where the centers are. 
Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, you know, et cetera. So we have a supply problem in those particular areas. And the proposal to raise the cost of development 46%, I mean, that shows the caliber of, I don't even, I don't want to be rude, but my gosh, how do you defend that? How do you defend saying, hey, we need more supply and I know how to get it. We'll raise the prices by 46%. You know, uh, the cost of development. I mean, this is typical. And you know what? Canadians allow this to happen instead of putting their foot down. And, and finally, one more thing. Let's review who's in favor of the wealth tax, which obviously would include people's houses. Well, you've got the Green Party and the NDP already on record. You've got the Liberals saying, no, we will not tax your primary residence along with the Conservatives. They're not telling. But people should understand this is in play right now. And back to your original point about the new commission survey, the point of that survey is to make taxing someone's primary residence more palatable to the public. Yeah, and the funny thing is that at this time we're getting numbers out of Toronto that show prices are actually declining in Toronto and all across Canada. You and I talked about it two months ago that I felt the high is in place. <laughs> Go figure. Well, we'll be chronicling that side of it, too. But I just wanted to bring this to people's attention. Great job, as usual, Ozzy. People should go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Thank you, Mike. And remember, it's tax time. So uh, what do you call somebody without enough personality to be an accountant? An economist. Economist. Yeah, there you go. And you were looking at me when you said that. You know, I was thinking, I'm not sure if there's any other outlet, uh, you know, Canadian podcast or radio show or anything who talks about the massive changes in currencies and the monetary crisis we're facing. I'm proud to say we're on top of that. We've been correct on that. And man, I think this past week has shown that in spades. That's why I want to get Victor Adair live from the trading desk. He probably has got his sweatsuit uh, sweat on because it has been a busy week. Uh, Vic, let's start with that U.S. dollar, though. I mean, one of our big themes on Money Talks is you get scared, money pours into Canada. Or, sorry, it pours into the U.S. <laughs> well, my, my saying on that, Mike, for years has been that uh, a capital comes to the United States for safety and for opportunity. The U.S. dollar right now is hitting, that the U.S. dollar index is hitting a 20-year high. It's particularly strong against the Asian currencies, the yen in particular. This past week, past two weeks, the Chinese currency has been falling sharply. The Korean won's been going down. Those other currencies need to stay competitive with the yen. But, I mean, the euro is getting hammered, too. We're at about a seven-year low or something. Uh, uh, no, it's almost a 20-year low on the, on the euro. The American dollar has been very strong this past month has been the strongest month for the U.S. dollar in over 10 years. Well, you know, that's music to my ears. I mean, that's, uh, you know, one of two or three absolute major money talks themes. Strengthen the U.S. dollar, problems elsewhere in the world, as you say, are opportunity coming. And, uh, and I'm looking at that. I'm looking at these huge shifts. And, and again, I'm glad you make the point. It's not incremental. We're talking 20-year moves here. You know, we're talking a 5% gain in a week. You know, uh, like this is, I think it's reflecting, Vic, there's just big stuff, seismic stuff happening in the world of finance. One of the things that I've said uh, about the currency markets, and I've traded currencies actively for more than 20 years, is that the currency markets seem to go 
way further than makes any sense. You, you think, oh, boy, this is it's getting oversold now. It's going to turn. No, it doesn't. These, these markets make these extended moves. And then when they do turn, they turn on a dime, which kind of goes to point, you know, that they were they'd gone too far in the first place. But yeah, trying to call an end to a trend in the currency market is is a tough business. Is it more manipulated now, do you sense, or is it just my recency bias that sort of feels like everywhere I look at there's, I mean, obviously there's been unbelievable manipulation of interest rates. That's the whole problem in Japan. You know, for what is it, 20 years they've been begging for inflation. That's kind of a joke, eh? 20 years they've been begging for inflation. Well, they got it. You know? Well, the, the Japanese, they're going to get more. Yeah, the Japanese bond market has been like, Right, stuck to zero for so long, and people over the years, and I'm talking about the past couple of decades, have gone and said, you know, the Japanese bond market yields have got to go up, and so they buy Japanese bonds, and it's been called the widow-maker trade because nobody's made any money trying to fade the Bank of Japan, and the Bank of Japan, they had another meeting this week. And, and the market was just stunned. They came out and said, oh, we need to keep doing this. So the end just took another leg down. Monetary policy has been a big part of this, you know, in that safety and opportunity thing. But uh, the American monetary policy being so much tougher, more, more hawkish than the rest of the world has been a big part of the U.S. dollar rising. Yeah, and it's not tough to understand. I'm going to give you two banks. You trust both banks, but one of them offers you 3% and the other offers you a quarter percent. Which one are you going to? And so money is coming out of Japan as just one example uh, and heading into the U.S. because you just get paid a lot more. As you say, Vic, you know, their sort of hawkish stance or their pro we're going to raise interest rate stance is probably the strongest in the Western world. And hence money flows into them. Their currency goes up. And, you know, one's interesting on a couple of levels, though, with oil at $107, a lot of people ask me, well, why isn't the Canadian dollar higher? Then I say, well, it's actually the U.S. dollar stronger, you know, and, and that's still the dynamic here. Yeah, the Canadian dollar has actually kind of held its own against the U.S. dollar while these other currencies are falling. I mean, let me put it to you this way. They, the Canadian dollar is at a seven or eight year high against the euro. I think it's at a 10-year high against the British pound, then it's at a 20-year high against the Japanese yen. So when we talk about capital coming to uh, the United States, some of that capital goes to Canada. Relative to the rest of the world, Canada looks like a pretty decent place. And that's another reason, though, and I am. I'm proud of what we do on Money Talks, and your contribution is terrific. But you're not hearing this anywhere else. People think that we've had a, maybe a slightly weaker currency you know, against the U.S. dollar, and they're surprised by it. No, we're strong against the euro. We're strong against the yen. You know, we're strong everywhere else you look, and that's what's key is to have a global perspective here because that's how capital's moving. Well, certainly Canada, I think we had the Toronto Stock Exchange was the strongest stock index in the world the first few months of this year. I think it was seen by the rest of the world. I mean, when you're sitting in Germany and you want to put some money into Canada, what do you think? Oh, it's a play on commodities. It's just that simple, okay? So Canada got a bid, the Toronto Stock Index got a bid relative to other stock indices, even the American ones, because it was a play on the commodity market. And now, the Canada also, the, the, the TSE has had a pretty sharp tumble here the, over the last two weeks relative to the other markets, but we've got weakness in stock markets all around the world. And that's a good point. Also, I'm just glad we have to 
uh, allude to it. I was talking to Patrick Sarizna earlier on Big Picture Trading about he says, you know, he looks at the commodity side, though, and the disruptions there are short term, still bullish, you know, as a long term investor uh, within that market. But certainly the stock market has been weak. I mean, obviously, I can read the Dow Jones, you know, and one of your themes that uh, Patrick talked about it, too. But one of your themes since last summer was look inside the market. I'm just saying this, and I was referring this earlier as my car car crashes, you know, statistics. My gosh, I'm just blown away by the declines in that sort of mid-level tier uh, tech stocks that were so hot. You know, I mean, I was looking, I was alluding to this earlier, Spotify down 73% from its high. You know, that's a big all-star. A a lot (laughs) of those uh, stocks, the tech stocks, the ones that weren't making any money. You know, the ones that were one of these days, things are going to work out terrific and so on. Those are the ones. And, of course, ARC, you know, that that ETF has been the the, the poster child for that. Well, one of the ones we talked about, uh, because it was new to the market, it was those meme stocks and it was Robinhood trading and all that. Just to throw that out, Robinhood's down 92%. Yeah, 92 percent. But when it went public, you know, that's I'm thinking that was just like when Glencore went public at the absolute top of the stock market in 2011, at the top of the of the of the commodity market. It was beautifully timed. You know, when all of that stuff, that froth is coming out and people are falling all over themselves to get into it. You know, you get this this sense that, you know, it's a sign of a high. Mike, I have to tell you, though, as much as the stock market has been clobbered, and it's not clobbered, clobbered. I mean, the major American indices are down about 10 or 12% from all-time highs after the tremendous run we've had over the past several years. The bond market is, what, is what's been getting killed here. The, the total return in the bond index has had the worst four months like in 40 years here. And that's important because people own these portfolios and not just people, but pension funds where they've got stocks and bonds and they're supposed to offset each other. Well, they're both sides are down. So people that have got a typical portfolio like that are not having a great start to the year. No, it has been devastating. And again, we just, I guess I've been feeling this whole week, Vic, that all of our major themes are just getting ticked off. You know, like check, check, check. Stay out of bonds. How could, how much more could we have said that on this show? The risk reward was brutal. There you go. Uh, the, those stocks we just alluded to, those sort of high flyers, the parabolic rise. Remember, that always has another dig. Strengthen the U.S. dollar. You know, when things go wrong, all of those things are coming home to roost. And I just want you to take a moment. How are you translating that into action personally in the market? What I see is that the short-term price action, whether it's currencies, commodities, or credit markets, is really choppy, really volatile. The volatility metrics uh, all across the board are way up. Part of that is people are backing away, so we don't have the liquidity that we would typically have. And people are backing away because it's just as simple. There are so many things to worry about. You know, this, that, and the other thing is is looking bad. And then you have this, like in the back of my mind, I've got this thought that maybe we've got a big change happening here. Maybe this little 10% break in the stock market is not a correction. Maybe it's start of something bigger, that kind of thing. So the way I do my trading, I'm keeping my size small. 
I'm looking for short-term plays in the market. If it's not working out, I'm stepping out of the market very quickly. You know, I've had a, a good start to the year here. I haven't hit any home runs. I just keep hitting singles and putting the money in the bank, you know, and being careful. I'm being very careful. Well, I think that's great advice. I mean, we talk all the time about risk management. Can't think of a better time to do it, you know, uh, than we've had over the last several months. Of course, you as a professional do it all the time, but it's been great advice, Vic, and we appreciate it. And I invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Get your updates from Victor. Vic, thanks for taking the time. Hope you have a terrific week. Mike, thanks for that. I would I'd put it this way. I don't make profits because I have a better crystal ball. I make profits because I manage my risks. That's when you say, how have I been doing it? That's how I've been doing it. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And it goes to the Attorney General of Canada, David Lametti, who testified this week in front of the Commons Committee looking into why the Emergencies Act was implemented. Because the Emergencies Act gave the government massive powers to restrict personal freedom, including freezing personal bank accounts for people who donated to a legal protest. And they had no recourse. And by the way, the politicization of bank accounts continues to be referenced around the world. This is a huge issue, and Canada's regularly included. So what was the Attorney General's rationale and the government's for the Emergency Act? Well, according to his testimony, the Attorney General said they relied on what proved to be a false story peddled by the CBC that stated that the truckers' convoy was being primarily financed by foreign money, including a completely ridiculous and unstantiated claim of Russian money. But Attorney General Lametti himself went further and suggested that he had no evidence whatsoever still stated on camera that the convoy was being financed by Trump supporters. I mean, it was all absolutely false. And the CBC claimed to have done extensive research. They literally had to admit, though, that in fact they hadn't done any. They made it up. But don't worry, in adhering to the lowest journalistic standards around, no one lost their job for that false report. Why? I think it's because the government approved. Making false claims is okay as long as it's in the service of the government narrative. As Paul Wells, one of Canada's senior political commentators, uh, commentators, remarked, the CBC is the government's most expensive PR firm. But I would have thought that taking the most aggressive assault on individual freedom in over 50 years would have merited some serious research and evidence gathering, but it didn't. It's no different, by the way, than the lack of evidence to support the extreme social media censorship measures now proposed by the government. They're unfounded. But it's not the only thing. Also noteworthy is the fact that it doesn't bother, it seems to bother many Canadians, that individual rights from freedom of speech to supporting illegal progress are only for those people they agree with. The story, though, was meant to, you know, these stories were meant to discredit the convoy in the public's eyes. And here's another one. I call this the trifecta. The, the second pillar, though, was reports that attributed arson at an Ottawa apartment, including the chaining of doors to prevent occupants from leaving. And they attributed that to members of the truckers convoy, which the Ottawa police said were absolutely fa uh, false. I mean, the arsonists had no connection to the convoy and have since been arrested. Yet this week, that falsehood was repeated 
in testimony in front of the Commons Committee by the Public Safety Minister, Marco uh, Mandacino. I mean, I guess why should he be held hostage by the truth? After all, he's a government minister. And finally, the third leg of the trifecta. Do you remember the outrage during the truckers' convoy's early days in Ottawa? Many pointing to this picture of a woman dancing on the tomb of the unknown soldier. Man, a lot of that was made hate of. Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley, well, he led the NPs and the commentary and the outcry, stating to see that from the protesters was shocking, disgusting, and a slap in the face to every Canadian veteran. Only problem, as the Ottawa police again confirmed this week, the woman dancing on the tomb of the unknown soldier had no connection to the convoy protest. I think that's quite a trifecta of falsehoods on the part of the government, mainstream media, and many in the commentariat because they oppose the truckers' convoy. False foreign funding, false accusations of arson, saying the woman dancing in the tomb was a member of the protest. No, more amazing, though, is that so many in the establishment hear that, and they still wonder why millions of Canadians have lost faith in the government and the media. That's all the time we have today. I hope you join me through the week on Money Talks tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, uh, Mike's Money Talks.ca. I'll just give you one example, though, that we're not hearing these stories in the mainstream media. Because if you were going to our site, well, you'd be hearing this kind of thing. I mean, one of the ones that's going to impact us directly is, you know what? If the Canadian government, which is going to collect about 41% of GDP in taxes and non-tax revenue this year, you know what? If they just went back to what they did in 2015, which would be 38.5% of GDP, that would be $70 billion less in taxes. It would save you, average taxpayer, $2,000 or a family of four, $8,000. Just a sampling. That's why you should join me on Money Talks tweets and the Facebook page and the homepage, all of that stuff. We got so much for you. In the meantime, I hope you have a great weekend. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet. 